You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. <laughs> should, we, should we do a podcast, Bracken? Let's do a podcast today. This is a big, we're sandwiched between a big weekend, big weekends of racing. Just come off Jacksonville. We have the Olympic trials this weekend. Everyone and their mom is, is racing or watching races. This is an exciting time to be a runner. Very exciting. Although I would say that you are more of the Olympic trials expert in the main players of the game. I think we should touch on that just briefly today. But what we really want to talk about today is one, we want to sort of uh, give our recap of Jacksonville. And two, we want to, you know, it was a good reminder for me and I think some other racers of like what Spartan racing really is, is even though Jacksonville is a flat, supposedly fast course, Spartan races are never really fast courses. And I think we should recap and touch on that whole experience, why Spartan races are so different than, you know, flat, fast running and and how that was brought to light in Jacksonville last weekend. I'm 100% on board with that. The more things change, the more they say the same. And OCR still is not 100% a foot race. It's so true. Um, before we dive into it, though, I wanted to thank you guys, the listeners, uh, last episode, I had asked if you would go and give us a rating or a review, um, and you guys showed up. You stepped up to the plate. We got maybe 25 new ratings and maybe a dozen or 15 new reviews. Uh, I just want to say thank you for whoever took the second to do that. That means a lot, and you stepped up to the plate, and that made my day. We appreciate that work. It helps us gain a wider audience and introduce more people to the sport of running or new runners to the sport, introduce them to a, a style of training and conversation that maybe they're not used to. So we appreciate it guys. Keep up the good work. Yes. Thank you. So let's just real quick. I know you're all giddy about the Olympic trials that are uh, coming up tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, what are your thoughts going into the trials? Are you going to be watching? What do you think about it? Well, I will be watching. And, and before I get to me, this is my PSA for anyone out there who wasn't planning on watching. Watch the Olympic marathon trials. I know that's a strange request. Why, why would I sit down and watch a marathon if I don't know anyone who's running? And my response to that is like, this is the American dream rolled up into one race. This is a race where there is no selection committee. Anyone who ran fast enough to hit the trial standards now has an opportunity to represent their country at the Olympics, which is the highest honor an athlete can have. And there is no, there are no politics involved. The first three men and first three women across the finish line, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic level, regardless of sponsors, political affiliation, it does not matter. Instagram following, none of it matters. It's just the three fastest people who show up on race day get to go to the Olympics. And that's yep. great because- no one has an advantage or disadvantage, and it makes for a tactical race. There's always this, this war at the trials of the top guys don't want to overcook too early. And so they stay in a pack for as long as possible because they know the longer it goes, the better chance they have of dropping down to a crazy fast pace and making the team. But there's always that next level of athlete who knows I can't outkick 
these studs over the last six miles. So I need to make a break. And it's just like the slow burn of a race that builds and builds and builds until some some ballsy competitor just shoots out and, and shoots a shot and goes for it and says, all right, whether I make it or miss it, I'm going out on my terms. I'm not going to let you guys just like slow play me to death. And it makes for a really exciting race. So go out and watch the race. NBC Sports or NBC at noon Eastern time on Saturday. Please watch it. Yes. And, you know, we had uh, Hobie Call on as our first guest of the running public and he was such a shining example of the type of person who is showing up to this race. I mean, he had sold crap to fund his trip. He was like, wasn't he living with like somebody's parents? He was like scraping by half of these athletes that you're going to be watching has sac have sacrificed everything. They're living on like the poverty line. They're making hardly any money in pursuing a dream. And you want to talk about somebody leaving their soul on the roads. You are going to see that Saturday. And the cool thing about that is, is like you had said, nothing else matters. And you know, when you watch like the end of a race and you see people that are completely empty, like their life has changed over that, that race because they found a level of hurt that they didn't know existed. You're going to see people who have put so much time into this one stinking race show up. And it just makes for like magical performances. When you watch the last mile of that race and we, we finally have seen it shake out and you see the looks on people's faces and the excitement. It is more exciting than the Olympic marathon finals, in my opinion, like watching our USA homeboys who have truly earned to be there, out there, leaving it. It's a, uh, it's a spectacle. Take the time to watch. And it's carnage during these races. So many people don't finish this race. It's, it's mean. First of all, they do a looped course. They do laps of the same loop. And that gives you so many opportunities to drop out of the race. Every time you run right. past the start finish area, it's like, well, there's my bag. There's shade. There's water and food. And my hotel's right around the corner. And I've been dropped from the race or I can't keep this pace. It's an easy out. And so a lot of people quit. And so you get to see who's totally invested, who's not. But also, like we said about Hobie, Hobie led the trials for like eight miles because he wasn't willing to just sit in the pack. He decided, if I'm running, I'm running an honest race. So we get to watch who will be the Hobie this year, who's going to be the sacrificial lamb, or maybe the dark horse. You never know which one they are. You're playing that game. Are they going to blow up, or are they going to get away from the field and suddenly accomplish their dream? And we have we have some mutual friends there. John DeWitt's going to be racing. He's a guy that went to Kirk's alma mater and lives in my hometown, and we train. He actually came over to my house last week, Kirk. We had, oh, he we had a did. pizza dinner. Yes, you do. And it's, let's confirm, it's DeWitt, not DeWint. We're not related. He's not my That's cousin. Right. It's spelled differently, DeWitt. But anyways, yes. Yeah. So we had toppers and topper six. Does that take you back, Kirk? Yes, it does. That takes me back to about 3 a.m. in my dorm room. Just a little bit sloppy. That was, I, it was the first time I'd had toppers since college, since late night college. But anyway, so uh, yeah. John DeWitt's down there. A bunch of guys that we have links to that we know. Uh, Joe Stillen's down there racing. Um, trying to think of who the, there's a bunch of North Central College athletes. There's like four North Central guys. So there's it, it's all walks of life are down there. We have personal connections to a lot of them. Tune in, watch the race. It's a perfect way to get through a long treadmill session or spin bike session if you're cross training. Watch it. Watch the drama play out on the women's side. Same thing's going to happen. There's a few women who have run OCR that are out there doing this. It's it's an awesome event to watch. Yeah. And I know, you know, the bulk of our listeners are probably OCR athletes or Spartan racers. We understand that. But the foundation of OCR is running. You can relate to this race. 
I know there's no monkey bars, there's no mud, there's none of that, but you will relate to these runners and you're going to appreciate what five minute pace over a marathon looks like. It's a, it's good perspective to keep working. So tune in. I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to add to that? That's it. That's it. That is it. Watch it. Enjoy it. I think everyone who watches the trials will come out of it fired up for their next block of training. It's impossible not to. In fact, I just watched the previous, the 2016 Olympic trials on the bike this week as I was able to start biking again. It was great. I loved it. I just finished it up this morning. Pumped you up. And you're going to see a dark horse. You always see a dark horse or two who's going to snag that third spot, and it's going to be a Cinderella story. It almost always is. It's fantastic. And this year it's wide open. You have the number one favorite, Galen Rupp, who's coming off injury, hasn't completed a marathon in a couple of years. He's minutes better than anyone. He's a multiple Olympic medalist, but he's coming off injury. And then it's wide open after that. You have young guns. You have old timers. You have some guys who are 43 trying to make it. We have uh, the second fastest man ever in the 1500, Bernard Lagat, is trying to make the marathon trials at like 43 or 45 years old. It's crazy. On the women's side, they had two of the top contenders drop out recently with injury. And so now it is wide open again. So you're going to see these dark horses and favorites and old timers and young guns all competing for just three spots. Yep. And if you pay attention to early last Spartan season, uh, Nell Rojas, who's out of, I believe, Boulder, Colorado, um, she she gave OCR a go. And honestly, she filled a bunch of stuff and she runs. And that's why she didn't perform a podium in some of the races she had run. However, she runs as fast or faster than like a Nicole Miracle on a flat course. I think she's run 228 in the marathon, which is what, 550 pace for the marathon? Oh, yeah, under. 545, 545. Anyways, uh, that's an OCR girl. She came in. You guys know her. A lot of you do. And um, might be fun to see if she uh, makes the jump. So, And she's a real contender. She's a real top five potential. So, yeah, there, yeah, there's a few. It's, it's, it's a really cool race to watch. And the dynamics are even cool outside of top three because top – Fourth place, fifth place, sixth place need to finish strong because they are the alternate if anyone gets injured or sick out of the top three. So it's... it's. Do you know what the standard is for the men and women? For the women, I believe it's 245. And for the men, it's 219 flat. There was a guy who okay. ran 219 point like 38 or something like that and did not get allowed in. Oh, that would... I would... That would have by less than a me. second. Oh, we're a whole marathon. And what is there any Olympic qualifying standards? Um, do they have to run a certain time in order, even if they're third, but they're too slow, they wouldn't get in? Is there is there a standard there? No, for the Olympics, it's just first three across the line. Our standards are are strong enough that you just get in if you run them. All right, cool. Did not just want to make sure. Um, all right, let's move on, uh, sir. So let's just recap. I had some epiphanies this week, you know, post Jacksonville, and it kind of brought up a good conversation with us about sort of the fact that the hype of this flat fast course in Jacksonville and be ready to burn the rubber and run sub five minute pace and, and all of these things in this buildup. And we're all just a bunch of morons who forgot that OCR is OCR and it's never as fast as you think it is. And it's always more of a slug fest. And that's exactly what Jacksonville was. You didn't need to be the fastest guy out on the course to win. Brack, we were just chatting about this before we started recording. You want to tell the people why? Like, it's not the fastest guy who necessarily won Jacksonville. Why is that? Well, 
the first thing is that obstacle density mattered. You had more obstacles per square foot than you did on any other Spartan race course because it, the race was so short, but they still had 20 obstacles. Also, the carries mattered more. You know, a 600-meter carry in a three-mile race matters a heck of a lot more than a 600-meter carry on an eight-mile race. And so suddenly, the ability to get in and out of obstacles fast and crush carries really mattered. And Ryan Atkins won for the men and Lindsay for the women. And you would not put them in the top five foot speed in the men's or women's field. But they were the best obstaclers and transitioners of the entire field. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, the shorter the race, the more percentage of the race you are spent doing obstacles or what we like to call tasks, tasks like carrying the sandbag, carrying the bucket. And when you start breaking down the race itself, the percentage of time doing things other than running is more in a short race. So, so that just means you're doing pure raw running less. And when we did run, there was that clay suctiony wet mud that slowed everybody down. And it starts coming down to power your underlying just engine and, and grit and raw foot speed. The, the opportunities we had to turn over the legs were few and far between other than the first 400 to 800 meters and then very small sections along the race. And as soon as we did have clean running, we hit those moguls on the speed cross uh, course and the motocross course, which just slows you down again and breaks rhythm. So um, the need for speed was a little overhyped and I, I am part of the problem. Um, last year, you know, Jacksonville was an eight mile race. They let us open up for longer stretches. There was some dry manicured trails we ran on. This year, it was just through the swamps, the muck, the mud, the grit, and had long carries and a swim in there. And so it was just a completely different outcome. Uh, in my eyes, I was halfway through that course, and I was like, shit, this is not what I thought it would be. And and there you have it. And I think a lot of people felt that way, to be honest. I agree. I've talked to a lot of people who raced, and then watching the race myself, getting the outside perspective it was really, really interesting. Now, in the women's field, it separated quickly, which we said it would because it was top-heavy and the, the depth of field wasn't as strong. But in the men's, it was fascinating that Ryan Atkins was clearly like the fourth or fifth or sixth fastest guy on the runs. VJ kept flying by and making up ground. Woods, even Newell's making up ground on the run. Kempson, and it didn't matter because the first obstacle Atkins would get ahead by 30 meters and he'd be 10 meters down going into the second obstacle, but then he'd be five down going into the third. He'd come off the fourth ahead. And every single time they had more and more ground to make up. And what I kept seeing and Kirk, you can speak to this in a minute is there was a constant reacceleration happening. Every time Ryan took two seconds, four seconds, 10 seconds on an obstacle, all the fastest guys had to redline a little harder than they wanted to, to reaccelerate back to the, get up into the race. And by the time they got halfway through, there just weren't those dramatic reserves of energy left. And now it was a strength running competition. It was a compromised running competition. How many hits can your speed take before your speed is no longer what you believe it is? And that happened eventually, you know, the rhythm was broken enough. And I actually had a couple of my athletes race. Um, and I think my athletes, I had maybe had five or six race and they did a good job, but I've heard from three people they're like, I felt like I couldn't get my pacing down. I felt like I was constantly like accelerating or trying to, and then having to slow down. I never felt like I was able to just run consistently. And I, 
And hearing that feedback, I was like, that's exactly what a sprint is now going to be in its short stature. You're constantly picking up speed after an obstacle or setting down the sandbag or, or whatever it is, and then getting dialed back by getting stuck in the mud and bogged down. And then you hit a quick stretch and you're speeding back up. I would say the consistency of pace was all over the map the entire race. It was a constant game of chess with yourself in the course. Quick, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down the whole way in different aspects. And I think that just took the that took the umph out of the pure runner's legs. It always does. And the strength runners win. And that's exactly what happened, just as you had mentioned. And this year, looking at now the sprint courses are going to be a little shorter. They said it's supposed to be a 5K. It wasn't. It was 3.7. The 10Ks are now the supers, which are shorter than eight or nine miles. And all of this transitional running and all of this like underlying engine coming through is just going to be more and more important this year until we hit the beast distance. So um, flat and fast, it's kind of out the window, man. It is. It's about power. Yeah, it's, it, it shows the importance of tying skills together. No matter how high your run ceiling is, your strength output ceiling and your compromise running, tying the two together, has to be equally high. If there's any gap between the two or three skills there, you rise to the level of your lowest skill, not your highest skill. And yep. in road racing, that's not always the case. In track, that's not always the case. Those skills can get exposed in certain type of tactical races. But in OCR, it will always be exposed that your lowest skill sets the tone for your ceiling rather than setting the tone for your floor. Yeah, I looked at some Strava splits. And for example, Ryan Atkins won the race. When it had just pure running sections, he was not the fastest uh, or even close. Sometimes he was out of the top five for like a two or three minute running segment. But you look at the addition of the bucket carry, you look at the sandbag, he had the fastest of all of them by like five or 10 seconds. And you start doing the math on those. He got on, Ryan Atkins got on Z-Wall third. He came off not only first, but first by 20 yards. Z-Wall was a little wet. People were a little slow. Ryan Atkins just doesn't have an issue with that. And suddenly all of those little things make a difference. And I know, you know, we're going to talk just maybe like a little bit about training today. We, uh, we happened to miss our training Tuesday this week. We got a few messages about that. We had some busy lives this week. So we're going to kind of blend today a little bit because the big takeaway from Jacksonville again was the compromise running matters. Speed is a little bit overrated and stay power is king. And like the ability to take hits and keep up a high rate of work. Right. So, we, we allude at compromise running or like, yeah, OCR running a bit. But I just think like, I want to pick your brain, Bracken, a little bit here. How does that differ from like run training? How would you approach that differently? I think that what what needs to be done is getting yourself into the state that you come off of obstacles. And then you hit your run training. I don't think that we have to get like anything crazy here. I think if people have been following a great 5K or 10K program to get ready for these speed races, I don't think that you have to scrap everything. I think adjustments have to be made so that you can access that speed coming off of obstacles. And so, Kirk, you felt it coming off of the, the water crossing, coming out of sandbags. Certain areas of your body were very sluggish to respond to the run. And that is the feeling that we have to hit in training 
so that you can absorb that during the race. And that can be as simple as if my hips, glutes, and quads were trashed coming off of something, you're doing speed squats or jumping lunges or walking weighted lunges right before you start your interval or your, your tempo session. Or it can be super intense, like doing an actual wad, like a high intensity circuit with running in between. But whatever it is, getting fatigued and blown out before the run starts is the way to address this. Yeah. No, what workout came to mind to me when I was mid race. Um, and it, it necessarily wasn't my day. It just, I wasn't quite myself out there. And, and when I was in the middle of the race, it reminded me of a workout that you used to prescribe me, uh, when I first started coaching with you back in 2016, when I was intro to the sport and it was something called the Hobie tempo. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the Hobie tempo is a tempo run. You probably could explain this better than I could, but it was a tempo sort of work that Hobie call would do. And this would be, I actually took it right from him. He, that was the first OCR workout he ever taught me. Oh, it was the Hobie tempo. Well, yeah. do you, I mean, you, what do you want to explain it? Uh, you, you're doing well, go with it. And then I will add anything I want after the end of that. So you take a traditional tempo run. Let's say you're going to go out for 30 minutes, you know, let's say 20, 25 seconds slower than 5k race pace. But what you do in this tempo run is it is a steady high end rate of work in which you put strength or plyo movements in the middle of this tempo run. Okay. So for example, the Hobie tempo run that you'd initially prescribed me was five minutes of tempo running right into like 40 lunges, 20 burpees and 20 pushups. And then right back to a five minute segment of, of tempo running back into, so every five minutes you were broken with like one to three minutes of like just burning work. And, and I haven't done that sort of extended effort compromised tempo running in maybe two or three years. And in the middle of the race, I was like, this is what that felt like. I remember dreading that workout more than anything because it honestly feels like you're racing Mm -hmm. and you're never feeling fresh. Your legs are never feeling snappy. Your heart rate's five, 10 beats higher than you think it should be. Your quads are burned out. And yet you're still trying to go right back to, in a sense, race pace. Cause that's kind of what tempo effort turns out to be in OCR. Um, and I said, guess what the heck I'm going to be doing these next few weeks. I'm going to do some Hobie, Hobie tempos, man. Uh, basically taking a tempo run and every three to five minutes, breaking it up with like some real work, like jump squats to the point where like, you can't do another one before you have to shake your legs out burpees to the point where you're starting to gasp and slow down. Um, that cool. simulates OCR. Is that how you recall the Hobie tempo? Yeah, yeah. It, he was doing, I don't remember if he was doing miles or five minute sections, but it was pretty, it was, that's only a 30, 20 to 30 second difference for the pace he was running. But yeah, five minute run. The original one was 20 lunges, 10 burpee broad jumps, 20 lunges. So oh. blow out the quads, get right into the high work of burpee broad jumps, right back into quads, and then run again. And it's a universal workout because it simulates obstacles very well. It's your whole body, your heart rate's high coming off it, but it also works your ability to run hills and and crest the hill and run again because the lunges just blow your quads up just like running hills do. So it's it's a universal workout and it plays to races. And Kirk, since since my injury started up, I've you and I have talked, I've been going back through all my previous training logs, all the things I used to be doing. And what I've realized is that my first two years in the sport, when I made my best impact on my OCR racing, it was because I was coming off college running and I did 
probably 50% of my speed work was compromised. Where every single week I was doing compromised running and I was doing circuit work and I was doing Hobie tempos and I was doing bleacher work and all this stuff that was designed to, okay, I can run. I have to be able to access a high percentage of that after I hit the first third of the race. Anyone's fast for the first mile or two of OCR. It's what do you have left? Everyone's stripped down to what do they have left? And that's what we saw in that race. Once everyone was stripped down to what they had left, there weren't these huge speed differences anymore. Yep, that's exactly true. In fact, I would love to look at the splits for like the last half or quarter mile of the race. I'd be curious where Ryan Atkins then, by the end of the race, where his run splits were in comparison. I Just a, a testament of durability. Um, and yeah, in, in workouts like that, um, more than anything, I think, help with your mental toughness game. I bet you there were thousands of people who were surprised with how their body responded and unhappy with like their ability. They're like, that wasn't me out there. That wasn't my fitness. I just couldn't push. It wasn't my day. Be like, no, that's what the course did to you. Like you came in as prepared as you probably could have been based on what you thought we were getting into. And it sucked the life out of your body. And you were reduced to your weakest state, just like you had said. And so I got to imagine there's a handful of people out there who aren't super pumped about how they did. And to you, I would say, let's start, let's start doing some consistent work with compromised efforts in there. Ryan Kempson put a post up on his Instagram the week of the race. And he's like, the week before a race, I like to do a really intense race sim. And he was doing a push for I don't know how many minutes where he was transitioning, doing strength work, but running hard for an extended period of time. It's a good lesson learned to those who didn't quite feel ready to take on the damage that race provided. It was for me even, and I do my compromise running, but I do it in an interval fashion. And, and it was a good, it was a good lesson to go back to maybe some of that extended work. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. One thing that jumped off the screen at me was that Ryan at times would look slower on the runs, but nobody looked more aggressive exiting an obstacle than him. If you can go back and watch Spartan races recap of the, of the race and we can get into what we thought of the coverage later, but he did a couple obstacles that they showed him exiting and he, it looked like he was already powering off the ground as he was landing. A lot of people landed and gathered and started running and he, he, it was like coming a receiver coming out of a cut, you know, everything he did, he hit the ground and purposefully accelerated his first 20 to 30 meters out of an obstacle were faster than the pace he ran for the next 200, 300 meters. But it was intentional. He not only stole time on the obstacle, but then he stole a couple more seconds on the next couple strides out of the obstacle and then settled back in and used the next stretch to, to recover. He almost had this like bell curve of pace, but like a reverse bell curve where he'd come off the obstacle at a super high pace, settle into a manageable, sustainable pace, and then accelerate back into the next obstacle. And it was damaging to the field. Yeah, little things like how quickly Z wall went for him. I watched like the rope climb. This is in hindsight. It was, it was two gra It was two pinches or locks with his foot and up. And then you watch like VJ Woodsy Kempson. No, no discredit to them. They climbed the rope probably faster than most two, but it was another like two, three seconds. And he drops from the top and he gets back and you start adding all those things up and pretty soon over the race, it's 30, 40 seconds and he's not running any faster. And so I think the point that we're trying to make is, like that transition work cannot be left alone. People are like, oh, I hit the gym and I do my strength work and then I do my running separate. 
But when you mash them together, it is a completely different world. And it is time to stop avoiding that if you are. And again, I'm somebody who hits that on a somewhat regular basis. And it was still a reminder to me, like, well, what you're doing, like you're not either not doing it right or you're not doing it enough. And it's time to reassess and go back, go back to that. And so takeaways from that should be huge for anybody who wasn't super happy with their performances. And, and it, it's interesting that th- this is all OCR. This is not just U.S. National Series or just sprints. When I came off my first High Rocks competition, where I was just humbled and destroyed, uh, Hunter called me a couple times to talk training and and try to, <laughs> in, in the, the type of person that he is, he wanted to see me at my best the next time we competed. And he was telling me exactly what he's doing. And what I noticed is that I was lifting. I was running. And from time to time, I was doing my high rock sims. He was finishing two of his lifts per week with a wad, with a circuit-based high-intensity four-time exertion. Even if it was only done at 85 or 90%, he was going fast between rowing and strength and skier and strength and lunges and strength, getting used to always moving in and out of things with purpose and working under fatigue. And then every weekend, he was doing a... Uh, a compromised run workout, but at worst they were divided into two or three long intervals. Most of the time it was one steady tempo effort and often it was 80 to 85%, but he was two to three times per week working that skill where I was working them all independently and tying it in once every week or once every other week. And so Hunter showed it in high rocks, which is very much a 50, 50 power versus running. Atkins showed it in a Spartan's flat sprint, and we're going to see it again in the next couple courses as well, that compromised running and staying power, like you said, is king. So you were saying, so Hunter was bulk fatiguing his muscles and energy system, doing heavy structured strength work. And even after that strength work was now done, where he's already kind of toasted his system, then he was going into high intensity interval work on an already fatigued system. Is that correct? Yeah. Even if it was only a five to 10 or eight minute Metcon or, or something like that, he was doing that. That was his finisher to his, to two of his strength workouts per week. And and those, those were without running. Those were non-running. He used rowing or skiing or lunging in lieu of running to avoid some pounding. But then on every Saturday he was doing his, his version of a, of a Hobie tempo, except for a high rock skill set. Yep. It's a great reminder, isn't it? And anyone who knows Hunter knows that he might be the best compromised runner in the world. Yeah. He can keep such a high percentage of his maximal output when he is coming off obstacles or carries or climbs. And Atkins is another one of those people. Um, So let's talk about like what you thought of the race, the results of that. Uh, What, what surprised you? What panned out just like you thought it would both men and women's? What did you think? Well, if you look at the Jack Bauer OCR predictions, I had nine of the 10 top five male and female correct, and only one was in the right order. So I felt like I wasn't surprised by the players. I was very surprised by the order. I, I, I had Atkins fourth or fifth. I thought maybe third if he, if someone stumbles or if he puts something together, but I just didn't think he was fast enough and like. Like you said, we were exposed in that, our yep. over-reliance on speed. Um, and I thought Nicole would would be closer to Lindsay than she was until the Miss Spear. But 
Uh, Lindsay was taking the race to her rather than her to uh, Lindsay. And I think that's that, another, it's another testament to the durability factor versus speed. Yeah. And also to, to Nicole's off season. I think that after the trifecta and everything, she took more time off than maybe people realized. Yeah. Uh, and then and I thought Faye Stenning would have a, a, a better finish. I think she had a good race. She had two bad obstacles. Yeah, to well, to fail a spear and fall off monkey bars and still be within two minutes of a podium is kind of crazy in a sprint. Yeah. It's true. But yeah, I thought she I thought she would be a player longer in the race. But I think I was more surprised that Ryan won and that some of the other people faded back so far. Like who? Uh, I'm not going to call out names because I feel like that's rude. <laughs> you know, I'm friends with these people. I know the work they put in coming in, but there were some people who were not a contender in the race that I truly expected to be right up in the pack. And again, it goes to show that once the wheels come off, it doesn't matter who you are. We all get mortal when the wheels come off. And then I will yeah. give a shout out, Brian Gowiski, you know, good, good friend of mine, but also put together an awesome race. He You're committed from the start. And he was rewarded for that. Yeah. Yeah. Something I was reminded of too, and I don't know if other people struggle with this. So I am a, I am, I do better when I'm uh, warm in a warm environment and worse in a cold environment. And something that I'm going to probably actually factor into my training and others might want to as well is they put us in that swim really early. Granted, it wasn't freezing cold, but we were submerged like our legs for two minutes, let's say. And when you got out, your some like my legs felt like stumps, man. They were frozen. They didn't want to respond. They couldn't move. I couldn't open up. They just tightened up and felt fatigued. Some people didn't complain about that at all, but that's how mine had felt. And I think maybe just exposing your body to those conditions in training might be beneficial to at least understanding how it feels. Because I said, okay, we're within five yards of the front getting out of the water. Now we push. And it was already gone. It was bizarre. And I think a couple other people felt that way too. And I don't know how you want to simulate that, but we got Seattle coming up next in the series. That is always cold and wet and similar as far as how the legs can get uh, exposed to cold water. So um, just something to keep in mind. I think that caught a few people off guard as well, including myself. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and it's, it's interesting that, like we said before, no matter how many things change, you know, things stay the same. And in reading for the marathon trials, I was reading back through some of the contenders and then reading up on their coaches' philosophy. I love reading other coaches' insights and philosophies, and that got me down a rabbit hole. So I was reading like Ed Eyestone. He's a famous coach at BYU. Um, and then I, I wound up on the Alistair, Alistair um, Brownlee and Johnny Brownlee, the Brownlee brothers. They're the two of the best um, Olympic distance triathletes in the world. I was reading their coaches' training philosophy because I believe that triathlon has a lot of parallels to OCR. Uh, but anyways, yep. a trend that came up amongst those coaches were where it was that no matter what you're training, you have to tailor it to the course you're about to race. If you're going to race a hilly course, you have to run hills. If you're going to race cold or hot weather, you better bundle up or or strip down in the cold and get used to it. And if you're going to yeah. race humidity, you better crank up the the heat or wear multiple layers and sweat. And if in our sport, you're going to hit water or you're going to get cold or you're going to hit switchbacks or you're going to hit muck. You have to train that. And there's no way around that. There is no amount of plyometrics or gym work that can translate at a one-to-one -one ratio to trudging through waist-deep water for six minutes. 
or for running switchbacks in in mucky clay for three minutes. There's just no substitute for that. Yeah, no, I was impressed with I was this was last year before Tahoe, and we have the swim, and we have you know all that that you had to prep for. And Ian Hosick put out a video of him, and he ran himself up a mountain. He was running up a mountain, come back down to his yard, hose down his whole body and legs in like freezing cold water, then go back out and run up the next mountain, or go back out and run 20 minutes, come back to the house, hose himself down, get cold, go back and do it. And look who had a fantastic race, fifth in the world, Mr. Ian Hosick. And so it's a good example. There may be an ice bath or two filled in my house in the next couple of weeks where I'm outside hitting a five-minute tempo effort, literally just submerging in the ice bath, running back outside. I could see some of that in my future. You're exactly right. Training for the conditions in which you have coming up, uh, again, was another thing that I think was exposed for me and a lot of other people. You know who scoffed at Ian when he posted that? Who? Me. I thought, you, you know what? I'm sure there's some return on that, but man, I am not going to do that. And you know right, who right. cramped out of the Tahoe Ultra? Yeah, you. Me. You know, like the proof is in the results. Yep. And, and taking it back to the trials, uh, the the year prior to, or the Olympic session prior to this, the Olympic cycle that was four years ago, 2016, they ran it in L.A., a marathon in LA and it started at like 71 degrees and it finished in the eighties and people were dropping like flies. And the people who did well were the people who were training with three layers on in their garage with all summer or cranking the heat in their apartment. It was the people that did the actual uncomfortable, non-sexy things that were race specific. Yep. I think there's some good takeaways that we all got. And hopefully as the listener, you got um, if you didn't race this last weekend, uh, but have stuff coming up, then you can be one step ahead of the game and get on this stuff ahead of time. Uh, because that's all, that's all good tips. I think it's stuff that we needed to be reminded of. I needed to be reminded of, I think, you know, people need to hear and whatever you got coming up next, I think being a little more race specific in your training is going to uh, pay dividends. So one thing I can't stand is when I read an article or listen to a podcast and there are some coaches on there or athletes who talk in theoreticals and then never give the actionable info. Yep. And then you're left to your own devices. So I'm going to be very, very blunt and clear with people. For the next stop of the U.S. National Series, Kirk, where are we going? We're going to Seattle. It's April 4th. It's going to be between 35 and 40 degrees at race time. And we're probably going to be getting poured on and going in the Snohomish River, which will also be mountain snow runoff water. So you have three things that are probably going to make you freaking cold. Right. And so we know that we're going to be very specific here. To do well in Seattle, you have to be prepared for flat ground running. You have to be prepared for a little bit of uh, technical quick up and down running. And you have to be prepared to do both in soggy, mucky conditions with water coming out of the sky and your hands very cold. So not only do you have to prepare by getting yourself cold and wet and doing that, you also have to figure out what your strategy is going to be. Are you going to wear some sort of waterproof top? Are you going to have blag mitts? Are you going to have hand warmers in a waterproof pocket? Whatever it's going to be, you have to make actual steps in your training to do your quality days under the circumstances that you're about to race in. 
If you live in the heat, then you have to find a way to jump in ice baths and do your grip work. If you live in the cold, perfect. Get wet and uncomfortable and go do it. But you have to get off road in your training and you have to get wet and cold. And that should sound miserable to you. And you know what? It freaking is miserable. But that's how racing is at times as well. And I think if your body is being exposed to a circumstance or a feeling for the first time on the race course, you're most likely not going to respond the way you want to. So I think that uh, it's a really good takeaway. It's a really good takeaway. And I mean, do you want to talk a specific, like if you just had to, if Seattle this next year would be the same as Seattle was last year, put, give me a workout, throw me a workout here, Bracken. Here's one where at the peak of my OCR prowess, I was doing Hobie Temple and I did this in preparation for an Illinois race that was supposed to be cold and wet in fall. And I won the race and I think in part, was my fitness, but the other part was my mental prep for this. So I did that exact Hobie tempo where I do a five minute run, 20 lunges, 10 burpee broad jumps, 20 lunges, and then run again. But I did the run on the gravel-ish like slanted side of a, of a country highway. And then I dropped down into the, into the ditch and I'd do my lunges through ankle deep water. And I'd lunge through the water, I'd burpee broad jump through the water, I'd lunge through the water, I'd run back up onto the gravel, and I'd run my next five minutes. And it was the stupidest workout. I looked like an idiot. I felt miserable. And like three weeks later, after doing that four times, I won the race going away. How'd you feel during the race? I felt like crap, but it was a crap that I knew. Like, yeah, yeah, I felt this way before and it's not as cold as it was when I had no adrenaline in training when the wind was whipping across the highway. So yeah, I've been here. I know that my hands will still respond and my legs are going to work. And just like we talked about transitions, if you practice transitions, you get better at them. If you practice being cold and wet, you get better at being cold and wet. So basically the crazier you look to somebody just driving by on the road probably means that you're doing something right in training, huh? If I saw a guy lunging through ankle deep water in the, uh, in the ditch, I'd be like, that guy's got a freaking screw loose. What is he doing? That's gotta be you. I got the Mississippi river right by my house. Mississippi river is literally a half mile from my house and it's got chunks of ice floating down it right now as the water's breaking up. And I'm thinking I'm going to, I got a nice bike path along there. Guess who's going to be doing some little dips in the Mississippi river coming up in some of these tempos. It's going to be miserable. People are going to look at me like, dude, you need to go like check yourself in somewhere. And I'm going to be like, you don't know what I'm doing, bro. Mind your own damn business, bro. So my final piece of advice for Seattle and then for other cold, wet um, obstacle races is that when you finish your lifting sessions, whenever it is you're about to do your grip work, have a bucket of ice water sitting there. And before you jump up on your monkey bars or on your pull-up bar or whatever you use for your grip training, put your hands in the water and get them cold. Just do clench, unclench, work your hands as hard as you can underwater for like 30 seconds and then do your grip work. Treat it like an interval work with water as the recovery period. And that will carry over. Yeah. And also think about, you know, a lot of these bars that you're using at either Ninja Gym or your gym are a lot smaller than a, a bar in an obstacle course race. I have uh, fat grips. I think it's like grips with a Z grips. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can put them on any bar. You can put them on any dumbbell and they simulate more the size of like the monkey bars do. And very helpful to be honest, even doing that. So getting those, even putting those damn things in the freezer or your wet hands and gripping them uh, makes a big difference because I'll tell you what, grabbing a fat bar is not even close to grabbing 
like a thin bar that you would find in a pull-up bar or a gym. So uh, you can order fat grips for like 20, 30 bucks on Amazon. Be a quick tip for you. Yeah, I have fat grips as well. I was gifted a pair and I use them like crazy. Yeah, yeah, they help. Uh, all right, so that was good. I like that. That was good for me to talk that out. I feel like I'm learning, relearning my lessons here, Brack, and I can apply these moving forward too, just like the listener. You know, every other profession, there's required continuing education that happens. You have to go back through and refresh yourself with the current best practices. And that does not change in endurance sports. Even though endurance sports training doesn't change rapidly, like maybe the tech industry or or other things like that, we get accustomed to the things that we're used to or that we enjoy, and we start to slip out of pattern of things that we used to need. And after a while, you need them again. So continuing education, go back through, look at your old training logs, go back through, listen to old interviews with people, podcasts, read articles, and reacquaint yourself with the things that are necessary for all athletes to be successful. Yeah. And don't, don't let us mislead you here with thinking like, okay, so every day you're going to go out and jump in the river and then do like some crazy ass shit. Like we're not talking, like you still have to go out and do your like other run workouts and you have your recovery days. We're not talking about driving yourself into the dirt by just doing this stuff every day. So this place purposefully into your training plans on quality days uh, for the most part. And, and it's worked into also like you're doing run workouts intermixed in there, but you know, I, I often do OCR compromised running every, I do one big workout every 10 to 14 days. Uh, I will be bumping it up to once a week. And so whether I turn my long run into a, like a, a long OCR long run where every half mile I'm stopping and just simply doing something like 15 burpees and 10 pull-ups and then moving on or something. But I think once a week, um, you know, we don't just run in our races and I don't think we should go very long with out doing some form of compromise training. So I'm bumping it up to once a week. Uh, if any of you all struggled with transitions and felt a little sticky uh, out there, I think you should probably think about doing that too. And guess what? You're listening to two guys who prescribe stuff like that. So reach out with questions or for coaching um, there. Uh, what do you think about the the projection? Now that we have one race under the belt, what do you think about the projection on the season? What does this mean to you? What do you look for? Do you think now it's going to be the same old story? We're going to see some Johnny Luna Limas and Ryan Kempsons of 2020 jumping out of nowhere. How do you feel? Well, I had a question that I, I talked about with Lisa the other day. And my question was, not a question, uh, uh, the first statement, then a question. Statement is that whenever athletes have a big change in their life, Things can go one way, whether it's marriage, children, moving to a new home, switching coaches, either it it springboards you to your next level of fitness and performance, or it is a distraction that takes you one deviation to the left. And you're that's the beginning of you not being the same level dialed in. And I wondered about Ryan and Lindsay. They moved to their new home. This was their kind of their dream home. They they've been planning this for a while. They got the location they wanted. They're they're finishing the inside exactly how they wanted. They're right. They live basically in the Adirondacks. They can ski out of their backyard. And my question to Lisa was, are we now going to see them do, spend all their time doing all these things they love at the expense of some of the things they should be doing? And they're going to build non-specific fitness. And is this like the first signs of Lindsay being mortal and Ryan starting to lose his grip in the sport? Or are we going to see that their passion is perfectly interlined with their pursuit and they're going to be at a next level of performance? And I think we got our answer. <laughs> I'm sad. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Because you still, 
even with the fact that it was high obstacle density and mucky running, you still couldn't pick a race that would give them a better chance of losing than Jacksonville Sprint, and they won kind of handily. A non-mountain sprint course. So do I think that this is the beginning of them going undefeated this year? No, because the sport's too good for that. But I do think that we are going to see more of the same and maybe even the best version of Ryan and Lindsay that we've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, though, I, I would say looking at, you know, last year, comparing the two, uh, Ryan was doing these like multi-day bike ventures across Canada. He was doing this year. He's done. I mean, I pay attention to everybody if they're putting their stuff out there publicly on Strava. He's done three, four times the running in the last two plus months leading up to this than he did last year. Much more specific training that probably factored into. He wasn't pursuing. I think he got the, what is it? The eco challenge out of his way. And now that was his big adventure for recent times. And he got back to like the dirty training work, I think a little heavier than he normally would preseason two. And I think Lindsay did the same, you know, they were climbing like Mount Kilimanjaro two years ago. And then last year, like this year, like they both came in like actually with other, without, distraction of other adventures and it showed it showed yeah yeah so my second takeaway is that man is it going to be difficult to be consistently finishing high up on the men's side what do you think of that spread from one to ten the spread was crazy close and there were people that were realistically could be top five that were outside the top ten and there were guys that were inside the top six top eight top 10 that some people might have predicted outside the top 15. It It is so, our sport right now is the deepest it has ever been, where everyone has arrived to their next level of performance. And the men's side is going to be very, very difficult to maintain consistent podium spots or top five spots. But the women's side, this is just like, it's pie gal. <laughs> it is wide, wide open. open, attack it, it is yours. This is the chance for, and we said this before Jacksonville, this is the chance for athletes to make their move and put a stamp on the season. And how many new names did we see in that top 10 and who rose to the occasion? The women's field was littered with names that people were like, who's that, who's that? Some women stepped up and filled those spots as we knew they would. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. These are the women who everyone at home is like, are you kidding me? You should know her. They're, she's an animal. Everyone around here knows her. Right. And yes, but the nation doesn't yet, but they're about to. Yeah. Men's side, I think the gap one to 10, heck one to 11, because I was just a second behind 10th was like two minutes and 18 seconds, which is the smallest gap in a U.S. National Series Spartan race. The next in, of all the years, I'm stealing this stat from Jack Bauer, who's the stats dude. So I take no credit for this. But like the next race, the U.S. National Series race with the smallest margin of time between first and 10th was like three minutes and 33 seconds before this race. And this race was two minutes and 18 seconds or something like that. I might not be exactly right, but that's just a testament to the depth of the, the men's field. Now, the women's field also had the smallest margin between first and 10th. So maybe we're being a little hard on the women, potentially. I think what we saw was... 10th still finished about as far back from first as 10th typically does. There just were less women up front mm-hmm. pushing the pace. There was bigger gaps from one to five. And then afterwards, it kind of we saw what we maybe expected in past years, uh, kind of how I saw it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's, it's exciting. It's, a, it's an exciting prognosis for the men and the women. For the women, it's wide open because any given day, you, 
you can be on the podium. That's awesome. And and you might not have as big of resistance as you'll find on the men's side, but for the men, it's still awesome. Like, Hey, if you put together your race, you're in the mix and you're also going to have people shoulder to shoulder with you or within sight at all times in the race. And that wasn't always the case in the past. Yep. Keeping the race honest. That's for sure. Give me your couple quick recap of of how your race went. Uh, I'm interested in hearing when the race separated, when it got bad, and I'd like to hear about the finish. You finished one second behind 10th. I want to I want to hear that. So give me the quick rundown. Yeah, um, I know me and you both have talked about how we don't want to make this podcast about ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll dive into it a little bit um, just because it might be relatable. Uh, first of all, and Nicole Miracle made a post about this. You know, she was coming off of the flu and bronchitis, and it wasn't quite her her training year. And I had a couple athletes that have had the flu and the same concept. Now, I didn't post any of this on social media, but I had the flu in late January. I then went on two rounds of antibiotics for bronchitis. I was a week removed from all that. And there's a, I mean, this is the time of year when people are sick. So, but you still show up. You don't need to tell the world this stuff sometimes. You just got to show up and you'll get them next time, right? So I feel like, you know, for me and I think others, I was a little compromised coming in. My breathing just wasn't where it needed to be. And I think that just caught up with me. It That was it. You know, every little hit we talk about, uh, you come off of something and you can't quite get back to your same pace. I just, it just hit me just a little more than it typically would. And, and that was the end result. I think the biggest shock for me was, um, and the race separated would be after the, the swim in quotes, because nobody really swam. Uh, I mean, we were bunched up. I could reach out and pretty much grab first place, you know, whoever was in the lead. We, I thought the race would separate in the swim. No, you know what happened? It created a riptide behind the leaders and it sucked everybody together. If you were leading, you were butting the wind or butting the, the water. If you were behind the lead pack, it sucked me right up, right into their asses. Like I was like, I'm working less hard than them, I think. And I'm just getting sucked along. Brian Gawiski went into yeah. that right up in the lead. And he said that since it was an out and back on the way back, he was fighting everyone's current from the way in and correct, it just correct. stonewalled him. Correct. And, but if you were behind the lead guy, so, you know, you just rolled that wave, but it's so every, instead of the race, uh, splitting up in the swim, it jammed us all together. I mean, it just packed 20 of us in. And then as soon as we got out instantly, the race, I mean, Either your body responded well out of that cold water or it didn't. And the race just opened up like instantly almost within that first 200 yards of that swim. And then we had Z-Wall, which people were wet. And there was a huge discrepancy in how fast people got through Z-Wall with wet hands. And and the, the boards were leaning a certain direction. So if you chose poorly, it was like you were leaning away from the board and hanging on for dear life. And if you chose correctly, you were leaning into the board and it was a much safer Z-Wall. And so all of a sudden you got off of that and there were 10 second, 20 second discrepancies in how long you all took. Um, I scoped out a little bit, so I had an okay time with it. But those were the two things, how well the body responded after the swim or power hike in the water. And then what the Z-Wall did to people. Then it really, it seemed to, positions almost held on pretty close from there. A little jockeying and extending and the gaps got bigger really, but like positions didn't change much after that. Um and for you to have enough room to make a real move after that, it was like a, a testament to like get out, put yourself in the race early and don't get disconnected because it happened to everybody. So for me personally, um, didn't feel like my body responded well out of the water. And then I just kind of lost contact. That was it. 
and I didn't feel like I was invested like I wanted to be. And and that was that was it. The sprint finish with Nick was fun. Um, he came off of the Hercoist, uh, maybe a second before I did, dropped his bag. And he was also on the close side of the Hercoist to the finish. I was on the far side. Uh, and he just gave her hell and earned earned 10th place. I, you know, my fight was kind of gone and prep kudos to him. Like he, he ran hard and crawled across the finish. It was an impressive finish. And there's some young guys like Nick and others who are, you know, going to have a really good season. Tell you what, it was fun to see some of the aggression out of these racers that we haven't raced much, like seeing Mark Godet, seeing Nick, Nicholas Riker, um, those two in particular, like the grit, like those guys were out for blood, the look in their eyes, the way they were breathing, the way they were pushing when you could tell they were hurting. Um, I was looking at their backs for a lot of the race and it wasn't like they were running scared. These people were out to be like, F you guys, I belong here. I'm ready to hurt. And so that was a pretty neat takeaway. Like you can't show up and be ready to give 95%. You got to show up ready to leave your like heart on the course. And a lot of the guys did that, man. There was nobody who slacked who finished well, not a single person. I, th- I think you summed it up there. Everyone's hungry right now. And, yeah. and you're, you, there are, there's no, there's no time to, to ease off the gas pedal in these races this season. You're a big gap is going to be 10 seconds, 20 seconds. You're not going to have minutes and minutes between you and the next person where, okay, I've got fourth place locked up. I can't catch third, but I'm set there. There won't be such a thing for most of the races as locked up. Yeah. Which is the way most racing sports are, you know, the race starts in the second half of the race and, and that's going to be really cool to see OCR following those footsteps. Yep. I think good lesson was uh, stay connected early. Uh, the sooner you get disconnected, if you're really racing for those top spots, the sooner you get disconnected, the more likely you are to continue to fade throughout the race instead of stay committed on that throttle uh, throughout. So yeah, I don't have any much other takeaways other than I was very impressed with the men's field, very little room for error. And uh, I was also watching the rest of the races, by the way, and like I had seen earlier, the men's field had 60 guys in it. Normally, it would have over 100 for a race like this. The age group fields and the times were freaking competitive. Some of those age group performances, start comparing them to some of the elite performances, uh, very impressive. Like if you're racing age group, which a lot of our listeners are, like you can puff your chest out and be proud that you're towing that line, man, because uh, you guys are running fast. It, making an age group podium right now is not the same as it ever was. Like if you're, especially in that 20 to 45 year old age range, like you guys got a legit race going on and it's pretty cool to see and watching the people come in and the grit on their face and how hard they were committed to the race, like made me proud to be in this sport. It made me proud to just, I didn't even know the guys. And I was like, look at how they're hustling. Look at that grit. Um, Kudos to you guys. I think it extends all the way up to 55 now to 59 where the 2020 will go down as the year when age groups became legit. Last year set the groundwork for that, where there were battles amongst the top three to five guys. Always, this is the year that it becomes a legit competitive field in the age groups. Yep, it was cool to see, man. It's just our sports growing, and you know, with everything, even with like, for people who are wondering if you're not like in the the pro team circle, which most of our listeners are not with like the Spartan protest and the contract negotiations and all that, you want to know what everything was butter. Everything was smooth. Everybody was smiles and high fives and, and talking to the officials talk. Everything is okay. Like our sport is okay. People still love it. People are still coming here to race. There's some people that aren't exactly happy with how things turned out. But at the end of the day, everybody loved being here, 
loves doing what we do and are coming back for those reasons. And so, you know, for now, I think that's behind us, so to speak, and people are going to move forward with good attitudes. That's what I saw. I agree. I think for the most part that everyone's on the same page, that it's love of the game. The other stuff is semantics that will be dealt with. Yep. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want to touch on or add? No, I just want to reaffirm what we said from the beginning. This year is going to be an incredible year for racing, and it's going to come down to your staying power with your running and your your transitions and your compromised running. Do not shy away from doing your training on the type of terrain that you're going to face in the race. 100%. And, you know, right now we have, from this episode coming out, uh, going to be five weeks until Seattle. It's not too late to start, whether you start on your own or reach out to Bracken and I. It's not too late for us to get you a program and get you to that next level before Seattle. Um, as far as coaching goes, it's not too late. Start now. Start this weekend. Start next week. Start doing some things that simulate your race uh, more accurately, and I think you're gonna it'll pay off in you know the next one. You nailed it. That is four full weeks of training plus a week to sharpen to recover and get ready to race. That is plenty of time. And you know how you can start it? Get yourself a big treadmill session on Saturday morning while watching the marathon trials. There it is. There you have it. And remind people again, because uh, that was a long time ago you mentioned. Where can they watch it? What time is it? Do that again. NBC will have coverage on their network. NBC Sports app on Roku or whatever you use will have it as well. I'm sure you can find it online. But NBC, 12 Eastern time, 12 noon. It's really like 12.03 or 12.08 for the for the men. Women are 20 minutes later. They start. But noon Eastern NBC. That's all you need to know. If you do want to learn more about it beforehand, um, whether you love or hate the website, it's super informative, especially this time of year. Go to letsrun.com and they have all of the Olympic trials preview information up. There's probably 10 different articles you can read and you can read up on who are the dark horses, who are the contenders, who are the favorites and personal stories on a bunch of people. It'll tell you how to stream it, how to watch it, but check out Let's Run. We have no affiliation with them other than we are fans of the sport and they represent the running public to some extent. Yeah, that's right. And I'll tell you what, thanks for listening to us kind of mash up our training Tuesday and Friday episode into one. Once in a while, that may happen. We have lives outside of this a little bit. So uh, thanks for bearing with us, guys. Thanks for listening. Let's crush moving forward. Watch those trials. Mm-hmm.